Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we reach into the 20 kilobits per second Diffusion archives for stories about magnetic bacteria, obsessive compulsive disorder, and hot chilies. But first up, here's the news. <laughs> Fish oil makes you age faster. Japanese researchers tested a diet with fish oil against a diet with safflower oil and found that their fish oil eating mice died younger than the safflower oil eating mice. The omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil have been shown to help prevent heart disease, so they've been marketed as health food supplements. They used to be marketed as brain-boosting food until the studies proved that this wasn't true. The biologists used a mouse specially bred to age more quickly than usual. Senescence accelerated mice. Oxidative stress is when chemical reactions in cells release reactive oxygen free radicals that cause damage in the cell. The researchers conclude that the cellular damage and the damage to the organs from the cell damage is what caused the fish oil eating mice to die younger. They quote a study that showed that people with diabetes who ate large amounts of fish oil aged more quickly because of oxidative stress. If you search online for stories about fish oil and health, you'll find there are many people clinging to the idea that fish oil slows aging instead of speeding it up. You can read the paper, published in the journal Nutrition, by the researchers at Tohoku University, Japan, which is titled, Long-Term Intake of Fish Oil increases oxidative stress and decreases lifespan in senescence accelerated mice. Avoid the fish oil and your mice live longer. Podcasting is under threat. Patent trolls are companies that don't invent anything and don't produce anything. They just buy up patents and then sue people as their business model. The Electronic Frontier Foundation reports that a company has patented the idea of podcasting and backdated it to 1996. The Texas company Personal Audio don't claim to have invented RSS syndication, or including audio enclosures in RSS, or even transferring files from computer to audio player. They claim to be the first to think of using audio compact cassettes with a printed playlist to distribute radio shows by post. Which sounds to me like it misses both the pod and the casting. Personal Audio are suing companies that podcast and distribute podcasts. They want you to pay rent for the privilege of using a system that they didn't invent on equipment they didn't invent. Their newly granted patent describes a system for disseminating media content representing episodes in a serialised sequence. Personal Audio have never released a single podcast episode themselves. Back in 1996... Personal Audio co-founder Jim Logan tried to develop an MP3 player 
that could download customised audio tracks. He even had a prototype that worked on a notebook computer. However, it didn't work out, so instead he went for magazines on tape, where a narrator read selected articles from magazines. Will Personal Audio start attacking the audiobook industry? Personal Audio was granted a patent on the idea for downloadable audio in 1996 and then closed shop for 13 years. In 2009, Personal Audio updated their patent to more modern uses and negotiated a successful settlement with Apple over the use of playlists. In July 2011, a federal jury in Texas awarded Personal Audio $8 million in patent infringement in a lawsuit against Apple. Business is booming. Last year, the American Patent Office granted them a patent that covers podcasts explicitly. And this year, they started sending out letters informing NBC, CBS, and even individual podcast producers that they were infringing on personal audio's patents. The Electronic Frontiers Foundation has asked supporters to help them raise $30,000 to finance their effort to challenge personal audio's patent at the US Patent Office. And they reached that goal in less than 10 hours, and currently they've raised more than $69,000. National talking magazines and newspapers were established in the US in 1974, so there should be plenty of evidence of prior art showing that all the ideas and the patents were already in the public domain. Look on diffusionradio.com for a link to This American Life's Patent Troll podcast, featuring interviews with personal audio lawyers and expert commentary. 3D printing with paper. 3D printers were inspired by inkjet printing on paper, and now the MCOR Iris will print 3D objects using regular office paper and water-based biodegradable glue. Using paper makes 3D printed objects around 20 times cheaper to make than using plastic. And 3D printed paper objects are biodegradable and recyclable. The printer can colour your object with ink as it makes it. However, the price is close to $60,000, so it's not ready for the after-school projects just yet. the 20 kilobit archives, here's Tim Baines investigating magnetically sensitive animals. Some people are rightly concerned about the violent magnetic storms that come from the sun and have been known to cause blackouts. But spare a thought for our furry, feathered or flippered friends who might be affected directly by severe magnetic changes. Lots of animals have been recorded as having some sort of magnetic sense. Everything from pigeons to whales to mole rats to humans. In fact, just in the animal kingdom, there are six phyla and 16 whole classes of animal that have been reported as having some interaction with magnetic fields. It should be said that the vast majority of these reports involved anecdotal or circumstantial evidence. That's not to say that these observations are misguided. Indeed, some of the circumstantial evidence for a magnetic sense, or magnetoreception as it's known, is rather good. For example, 
the uncanny homing ability of pigeons and migrating birds, as well as trout and salmon, not to mention the spooky way honeybees seem to preferentially align their hive behaviour along the directions of the compass. But the point is that there are very few direct experiments with a single animal where we can say for sure that they responded to a magnetic stimulus. It could be that the animals really don't detect magnetic fields. After all, pigeons and other homing birds could be using the arc of the sun to get an idea of north. It could be that a magnetic sense is just way down the list of importance compared to all the other information animals get from their sight, smell and hearing. One thing that eluded researchers for a long time was any possible clue to how these animals might be sensing magnetic fields, particularly magnetic fields as weak as the Earth's. But in 1975, a fellow with the last name of Blakemore discovered magnetic sensing bacteria. The discovery involved a very tricky bit of scientific deduction, and the thing was, as soon as he got the little beggars under the microscope, he could see exactly how these bacteria were being directed by the Earth's magnetic field. This bacteria which Blakemore found is now conveniently known as Magnetobacterium bavicarum. And inside it, it has tiny little black specks that form long strings along the length of the bacterial cell. These specks turned out to be made from a substance called magnetite, which, true to its name, is indeed magnetic. And these chains of magnetite crystals cause the bacteria to align with whatever the local magnetic field is. And this is the cute little bit of detective work that Blakemore did in order to make this astounding discovery. These particular bacteria are anaerobic. That is to say, they much prefer living without oxygen in the slimy muds of a lake in northeastern America. But in that part of the world, the Earth's magnetic field not only points north, but it also points down fairly steeply. So, when the bacteria is disturbed from its happy home in the mud and slime to the oxygen-rich water above, it needs to find a way to get back down there. One problem. If you're only three one-millionths of a metre long, then gravity doesn't mean very much. But if you can align with the Earth's magnetic field, then in the area where these bacteria live, you can find your way, find which way is down, and you just keep on swimming or wiggling or whatever it is that bacteria do in that direction. Snazzy, huh? So, what can we do with this? Well, we can't eat them. But Western Australian scientists have found a way to use magnetic bacteria in cleaning water. Bacteria are used all the time in removing toxins from polluted water. But the big problem at the end of the day is how to get the clumps of this helpful bacteria out of your fresh water. Up until recently, the answer was spending a lot of time filtering the water and then chucking out the bacteria and your expensive but now useless filters. With magnetic bacteria, you can extract the, it, the bacteria, with a magnet and then reuse the same bacteria on your next pool of polluted water. That was our favourite magnetic animal, Tim Baines, talking from the 20 kilobit archives about magnetic sensing bacteria. Around 3-4% of Australians have obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. They're preoccupied by obsessions, repetitive thoughts that are usually distressing, 
as well as compulsions, habits and rituals that they repeat over and over again to reduce their anxiety. Up to two-thirds of adults with OCD can trace the disease back to their childhood, which appears to be a critical time for treatment. The Pathways Health and Research Centre has a cognitive behavioural therapy treatment program for children. Christine Baker spoke to Lara Farrell, clinical psychologist and director of the Pathways Health and Research Centre. The most common compulsions or rituals in children and adolescents as well as adults are washing and cleaning rituals, a lot of hand washing and showering as well as checking rituals, so checking locks, doors, windows for children, checking their school bag over and over again, checking their schoolwork, um, as well as things like um, saying prayers over and over again, lining things up, arranging things, um, anything that's repetitive in nature. Mental illness is not something I usually associate with children. How many kids are affected by obsessive compulsive disorder? Many more than we've previously believed. We know that about 3 to 4% of all children and adolescents will experience OCD and it's a very persistent disorder. Um, research has indicated that two-thirds of all adults who have obsessive compulsive disorder actually report onset during their childhood or adolescence. So if you have OCD as a child, without effective treatment or intervention, it can go on through adolescence and adulthood. And if it's not treated in childhood or adolescence, does it become more difficult to treat? Certainly. We know um, when we work with adolescents and young adults that, that the condition becomes much more difficult and resistant to treatment, particularly if it's comorbid or co-occurs with depression, which um, does happen quite frequently in adolescence and adulthood. Do we know what causes obsessive-compulsive disorder in children? We're not entirely sure of a, a direct cause for OCD in childhood. There are a number of different hypotheses. One is that there is a very strong biological component to OCD where specific regions of the brain and brain chemistry are strongly associated with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And we also know that OCD tends to run in families. So if there is a child with OCD, often there is someone in the family or the extended family that has a similar condition. Does that tend to impound the severity of the illness in the child if the person who's looking after them also has OCD? It can do, particularly when we're working with very young children. Um, we've been treating children as young as five and six that have the disorder and may also have a parent who has the disorder. And it's very difficult for that child when they're trying to fight the OCD and, and change their behaviours when it's very much strong and, in, and inherent in their parents' behaviours. Is there any evidence that traumatic events trigger the disorder? Mm. Certainly in the study that we have conducted over the past five years, probably around 50% to 60% of our sample experienced a significant stressor prior to the onset of the disorder. So it's not necessarily something traumatic. It's usually a normal life experience that's stressful by nature. Most kids cope in that situation. However, the child sensitive to anxiety and OCD finds it very, very difficult to cope in that situation and often may experience then some of these symptoms. For example, the transition from primary school to high school is a significant stressor for kids prior to the onset of the disorder, as well as the severe Illness in the family or an illness within the child can also be associated with the onset. Pathways Health and Research Centre is launching a new program for treating obsessive compulsive disorder in children and they're using cognitive behavioural strategies. Could you tell me a bit about what these strategies are? Cognitive behavioural therapy for treating OCD 
is based on teaching the child how to think in different ways, in more helpful, positive and optimistic ways, how to manage their feelings more effectively and learn how to approach difficult situations and feared objects or places. CBT, um, we've, we've been trialling over the past five years in a control trial within Griffith University and this was the first one conducted within the um, international arena and we've got very significant results showing that about 80% of kids who have CBT, which is usually about 12 to 14 sessions, are diagnosis free at the end of the treatment and they do maintain um, these gains 12 months, at least 12 months after the treatment and we're still following kids up long term to find out how, how durable the treatment effects are. How do you teach someone to change the way they think? For example, with OCD, um, it's very much the thinking is about something terrible happening and kids get very involved and wrapped up in these thoughts and, and do everything they can to try and prevent this bad thing from happening. What we do is teach kids that everyone does have bad thoughts at time, from time to time, thoughts that pop into our head that something something might not be right or might be harmful. What we have to do is teach kids to learn how to deflate the intensity of those thoughts so think of ways of checking the chances, how likely is it that this thing will happen and how severe would it be if they did get sick or they did get a cold or they did vomit or get germs on them. So we teach them ways to challenge the OCD thinking and to come up with more rational and powerful thought. That was Christine Baker talking to Lara Farrell, 2003 Director of the Pathways Health and Research Centre. For more information, go to www.pathwayshrc.com.au. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And back to the archives. Have you ever wondered why biting into the humble chilli sometimes results in steam blowing out of your ears and tears streaming from your eyes. Well, self-confessed chilli addict Adam Mark explains. When I was young, our family had a chilli bush in the backyard. My brother and I were told not to go near it because the chilies were of an extra hot variety. So just like uh, when someone says to you, don't think of pink elephants, our curiosity got the better of us and we decided to pick the chilies off the bush and throw them at each other like any five and six year old would do in a similar situation. So after a good 30 minutes of this fun and frivolity, the call of nature, well, call. Gentlemen out there in Radio Land, I don't have to draw you a diagram on what happened next. Suffice to say that I spent the next hour in a very cold bath trying to deaden the pain. So since that eventful day, I've been strangely fascinated with the humble chili and its tear-jerking effects. You see, the compound that provides the kick is called capsation and is found mainly in the interior tissue of the chili which is where the seeds adhere to. Capsation has at least five separate chemical components or capsaicinoids. 
Three give the sensation in the throat and the back of the palate, while the other two give a slower, longer-lasting sensation and less fierce, fierce sensation on the tongue and mid-palate. The chemical responsible for the chili sting was first isolated by an Englishman in India in 1877 and later identified as 8-methyl-N-vanilol-6-nonamide. Since then, researchers have isolated a dozen or so individual compounds that make up capsation. Each capsationoid differs slightly in chemical structure. Essentially, each structure is a hexagon attached to an open zigzag chain of carbon atoms. The hotness diminishes as the chain lengthens or shortens, suggesting that there is a midpoint at which hotness peaks. This may explain why some peppers have an immediate bite, while others only cause moderate discomfort. The perception of heat is felt when the chains get to be three or four carbons long and disappears when the chain is longer than 11. The hottest range seems to be eight or nine carbons in length. The increasing understanding of how capsation acts on a chemical found in nerves called substance P by the way, the P stands for pain, has created a surge of interest amongst neuroscientists. Extensive experiments with animals show that capsation relieves pain first by selectively attracting and then destroying the messengers responsible for taking the pain messages to the brain. When capsation is applied to the body, it first attracts substance P from the nerve endings at the contact point. Substance P then starts to signal a burning sensation to the brain, but capsation soon begins to destroy the attracted messengers. As more SP is sent, it, it too is destroyed. Capsation bleeds the neurons of SP until they no longer manufacture it. As a result, there are no more pain messages left when capsation has been applied, and the sensory nerve endings become insensitive to chemically induced pain. What is extraordinary, according to these scientists, is that capsation destroys only the pain messengers and leaves intact the nerves, others charged with relaying tactile sensation, like physical pain, heat, cold, taste, things like that. Such is not the case when anaesthetics are administered or when a nerve is severed to relieve chronic pain. Pharmaceutical companies are finally beginning to exploit this unique attribute of capsation, which has long been the active ingredient in muscle relaxants and topical creams. But how do we objectively measure the hotness of a chili? Like rocks have Mohs scale of hardness, chilies have the Scoville scale. The Scoville scale refers to the number of times that extracts of chili dissolved in alcohol can be diluted with sugar water before capsation can no longer be tasted. It was developed by a pharmacist named Wilbur Scoville and became known as the Scoville organoleptic test. Scoville had been studying the pharmacological uses of the chili but became frustrated with many variables. Complaining in the 1912 issue of the Journal of American Pharmaceutical Association, Scoville felt it would be better when ordering peppers if their pungency could first be ascertained on a measurable scale. He knew that the tongue was the most sensitive area able to detect capsation, but the compound responsible for the pungency in peppers. Because capsation is soluble in alcohol, Scoville was able to soak them and attract the pungent chemicals from the pods. From this extract, he took the precise measurement and added definite amounts of sweetened water until the mixture's pungency was barely perceivable on the tongue. In the case of Japan chilies, it took sweetened water in volumes between 20 and 30,000 times the pepper extract before the pungency was barely discernible. Thus, he rated those chilies as 20,000 to 30,000 Scoville heat units. This system was used until the invention of a machine that could detect the hotness of a chili.
Another way to measure the potency of a pepper is to use a high-pressure liquid chromatograph, or more commonly referred to as an HPLC machine. Unlike humans, it never tires of testing chili pungency. To test by HPLC, capsation is put in a tube under high pressure and then exposed to a beam of light. Since capsation fluoresces, that is lights up, the stronger the hotness of the pungency of the chili, the brighter the light. This measurement is then transposed onto a graph, which looks more like a seismograph, complete with peaks and valleys. Capsation is actually composed of several individual compounds, with each representing a unique type of pungency. The peaks of all the curves are added to designate the chili's strength. While the tongue was able to test only about six samples per day, the machine is able to do 30 samples in eight hours. Although the American Spice Trade Association is a strong proponent of the machine, Scoville's name is so well established that the association has had about as much success in making people adopt their scale as a US government has had in adapting the metric system. According to Scoville Scale, the following peppers range from the mildest to the hottest. The Anaheim, between a measly 250 and 1400 units. The Humble Jalapeno, between 3500 and 4500. Tabasco, 30,000 to 50,000. The Cayenne, to 100,000 to 105,000. And the mother of all chilies, the Habanero, which averages 300,000, which is pretty much lethal. Ironically, capsation is odorless and flavorless. It is barely soluble in water, so although drinking water when you get a good hit feels good, it does bugger all to break down the chemical components. But capsation does dissolve in milk fat or alcohol, which is why many hot dishes are served with a milk dish or should be consumed with copious amounts of beer. But that's another story. That was the red hot chili pepper himself from the archives, Adam Mark with a lowdown on capsaicin, the active ingredient in Chile. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send us feedback so we know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Contributing from the 20 kilobit archives were Tim Baines, Christine Baker, and Adam Mark. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.